Dr. Ali Khadam Husseini is the director and CEO of the Terazaki Institute and former professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he held a multi-departmental professorships in bioengineering, radiology, chemical, and biomolecular engineering, as well as the founding director of Center for Minimally Invasive Therapeutics. He was born in Tehran, Iran, and grew up in Toronto, Canada. He received his PhD in biomedical engineering from MIT under the supervision of Robert S. Langer, and a master's and also undergrad degree from the University of Toronto, both in chemical engineering. From 2005 to 2017, he was a professor at Harvard Medical School and the Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. He has authored more than 500 journal papers with more than 64,800 citations and delivered more than 300 invited lectures. He is the recipient of more than 60 major national and international awards, including the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, the highest honor given by the U.S. government for early career investigators. He has been selected by Thomson Reuters as one of the world's most influential minds as a highly cited researcher for five consecutive years. I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a Fireside Chat episode of Science Rehashed. And we're back with another Fireside Chat episode. Today, we have with us Lauren, one of our writers here at Science Rehashed. Lauren, are you excited about today's guest? Yes, absolutely. When I looked into Dr. Kanem Hosseini's research, um, I was fascinated by the technology he's developing and this idea of using nanoscale specialized systems to test drug candidates. Um, and this organ on a chip system is really groundbreaking and when I learned that he was actually integral to developing that technology, I was really interested in hearing about his background and what he's working on now. Absolutely. Dr. Ali Khadam Hosseini is a leader in applying bioengineering techniques and solutions to precision medicine. His large and interdisciplinary research group is interested in developing personalized solutions that utilize micro and nanoscale technologies to enable a range of therapies for organ failure, cardiovascular disease, as well as cancer. His research focuses on developing various approaches to merge microfabrication techniques, such as 3D bioprinting, photolithography, and microfluidics with hydrogel biomaterials for directing cell organization and generating complex 3D tissues. He's also working on developing organo-chip systems that aim to mimic the human response to various chemicals in vitro. And we'll hear about his research and much more in today's episode. If you're enjoying the show and you want to help us keep making the content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com slash join slash science rehash to become a patron for just $3 a month. Or you can become a VIP patron for just $5 a month. Our first 10 VIP patrons will receive a free science rehash water bottle. Thank you so much, Ali, for being with us today for these Fireside Chat episode. It's a big honor and a pleasure to have you in our show. 
I would like to start our chat by traveling backwards through your career path. Before being the CEO of the Terzaki Institute, you were professor of bioengineering, chemical engineering, and radiology at the UCLA. And before that, you were at Harvard University in Cambridge. Can you lead us through these years? How did you get into Harvard? How important these years were for your career? And how did they lead you to where you are now? Sure. Um, so maybe before I even get to that timeline, I'll start a little bit before that. I, I grew up in Toronto and I got uh, initially exposed to um, bioengineering when I was in the third year of a chemical engineering program at the University of Toronto. And I was um, kind of, it was one of those requirements that you had to have um, some research experience before graduation. So I spent the summer of my third year at the University of Toronto in the laboratory that was doing tissue engineering, and I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and it was only after that that I decided that I wanted to go to grad school and do this, uh, um, this endeavor in uh, tissue engineering and biomaterials and biomedical research. So what I did was that I uh, uh, continued that. I actually wound up doing a master's at the University of Toronto. And then I went to MIT for my PhD, where I went to Bob Langer's lab, who was a big pioneer in the area of tissue engineering and biomaterials. And uh, that really, I think, prepared me well for um, the subsequent um, things about being a faculty. I really thought that it was uh, the way Bob Langer uh, made his lab and um, created uh, innovations from his uh, scientific um, endeavors was very interesting. So that was the model. And um, and after that, uh, when I finished, actually before I finished my PhD, I had this um, uh, a few opportunities to go around and um, interview for faculty positions, um, including one at uh, Harvard. And I decided to kind of stay at Harvard um, for um, my early faculty career. And um, and I think it was a really uh, you know good decision at the time. It was a high risk, potentially high reward kind of decision because you know it was a much more a competitive um, environment and much less resources than what I would have had at other institutions. But I think um, it kept me um, in an environment that was very um, inspiring uh, scientifically with great uh, people around. And um, also the fact that it was um, somewhat low on resources allowed me to kind of always stay sharp scientifically and be able to write a lot of proposals and, um, you know, try to always um, um, renew our science so that it can stay within the times and competitive. So, um, so yeah, so that was um, early Harvard days. I stayed, um, I got all my promotions. Um, um, I think I was full professor in 2013. And then I stayed a few more years after that. In 2017, I moved over to UCLA. And um, really, the the big drive was uh, partially, uh, I just felt that I was in Boston already for 17 years. So it was time to um, look at new opportunities. But also the other thing was that I um, I felt that as a PhD at the Harvard Medical School, there's al there's always a uh, glass ceiling and limit about what you can actually accomplish uh, once you become a senior faculty. So so that's um, with that uh, I decided to come over to UCLA initially and 
Soon after that, I uh, started interacting with uh, the Terasaki family and Stort. Um, and uh, to that really led me to kind of my current position, which I'd be happy to kind of also explain. Ali, you mentioned you grew up in Toronto, but I know that you were born in Iran and lived there during the turbulence of the Iranian Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War. I also experienced the years of Iran-Iraq War and really impacted how I look into life and how I appreciate my moments and opportunities during my career as well as life. I'm interested to know how did these experiences affect your life and your appreciation for the opportunity you have had after that? Uh, so I was four when the revolution happened. And so obviously I was um, too small to kind of notice and really understand what was going on. Uh, but I do remember some scenes from it. But, uh, but I was definitely very well aware of the war because I was there until near the end of the war. Um, so I think, you know, what those experiences do is that they, um, yeah, they, they really make you appreciate, uh, what, um, opportunities you wind up having. And, um, and I always say that, you know, the fact that I, I wound up going to Canada made everything so much easier for me, because if I had to, uh, apply to a place like MIT from Iran, I would have never been able to get admission because I know the people from Iran who get admission to MIT and they're uh, definitely off the charts. So it, it, um, it definitely made things easier, but, um, and also it allowed me to get exposed to different uh, types of opportunities that would have been much more difficult um, to get exposed to. So uh, for example, um, I think that um, as a person, I, I was, you know, I was always more experimental to compare to being very, very theoretical person. So in that sense, I think being in a um, in Canada and being able to uh, go to these very well resourced laboratories and uh, get exposed to all the latest techniques, I think was fantastic. And and um, and I think you know the, the allowed me to kind of get the bug for uh, scientific research, which is. Uh, very important if you want to go into this profession. At Harvard University, you directed the Biomaterials Innovation Research Center, a leading initiative in making engineered biomedical materials. So what were the most challenging moments during your time at Harvard? So Harvard is a pretty amazing environment when it comes to scientific research. But as you can imagine, uh, being a, a junior faculty and going up through the system was uh, you know, rather challenging. And one of the challenges was that we were required to have um, a significant amount of our um, resources through external sources like government grants and um, things related like that. So it basically made a lot of uh, stress when it came to um, uh, fundraising and you know, being able to do scientific research when um, you had to make sure that you brought in a lot of um, external grants. So that was, um, and given that government is grants are so competitive to get and so so low chance, so low frequency, the chances are fairly uh, fairly low that any particular proposal gets funded. So that was always very challenging. Um, the other thing that I think um, you learn as you try to go through um, being a faculty in general is to how to manage uh, your laboratory and how to be able to um, motivate uh, people and really try to, um, at the same time, not only um, allow people to, um, to 
to grow scientifically, but also try to meet the requirements of the grants, um, like the um, what the work is that you've promised on those things. So being able to just manage and um, manage people and manage your time were other challenges that I had to kind of um, learn kind of on the job. But but I think overall, it was a fantastic experience. I really uh, liked um, the ecosystem there. And I think overall, uh, it was very good for me at that stage of my career to be uh, over there. For someone like me who has been living and working in Boston for a long time, I can say you were leading one of the most outstanding labs in the greater Boston area. And speaking of outstanding and impactful labs, you are now leading the Terazaki Institute for Biomedical Innovation. Can you tell us a bit what is the impact that these institutes would like to have in the long run? The Terasaki Institute is, is one of the institutes that I feel could have a really uh, powerful impact with respect to the type of way innovation can be achieved um, in a scientific ecosystem. So, so just when you think about some of the um, way typical universities do um, innovation, it's basically um, they have a technology transfer office and they have hundreds and thousands of faculty um, working in laboratories all on very random, very um, um, different types of projects. And the technology transfer office typically just waits for people to submit um, disclosures to them about what they think is potentially of interest to um, to patent, license, and to probably to potentially translate to the real world. Now that method has worked, particularly because um, the U.S. government invests so much in um, um, research that, um, and there's so many universities with so many faculty that are doing this all over the country. Now the disadvantage of that process is that it's very um, based on many different factors like just scale huge uh, huge number of people working and the the fraction of that research is that is actually going to make a difference is actually very small most of the research winds up not really making a significant impact and oftentimes um, uh, the the return on investment is not nearly as good as uh, people like. Now, what's the challenge with that process? Well, the reason that ratio is very low is that the innovation process is not really institutionalized in a way that is um, an objective of the research at the universities. When universities do research or when universities basically are operate, there's many competing um, uh, missions that they have. So they, um, they don't only um, do research, but they do education, they do um, you know, fundraising for philanthropy, they try to come up with different types of programs, you know, all kinds of things which are not necessarily just innovation. And innovation, I would argue, is sometimes a byproduct of you know, just lots of other things that are happening at the university. So what um, inspired um, a place like the Tarasaki Institute 
is really uh, case studies uh, where an incredible amount of innovation comes from a, a very uh, small subset of a university or um, or a research um, location. So, for example, you know where I used to be at the um, Langer Lab is a perfect example. Like a single lab um, that generates um, an incredible amount of uh, impact. And uh, Bob Langer himself is not only an incredible scientist, but he's a very, uh, uh, very established entrepreneur who started um, over 40 companies and including um, uh, being a co-founder of Moderna, which has uh, you know, been one of the most um, important companies of the past couple of years. So, so, so I think, you know, that's the kind of small but highly impactful operation that I'm talking about. Or, um, or I would argue um, another place that's kind of I would say is a bigger brother of the institute here is the Wies Institute. The Wies Institute is a, another place where I, I was a faculty at. And uh, what Wies Institute does is that they make innovation as their mission. So then they really focus on bringing in faculty who are entrepreneurial um, to um, create an ecosystem where that um, entrepreneurial process can thrive and provide resources for that. So that's um, those kind of case studies are what inspired the institute. Um, now, um, typically, both of these case studies are still at universities, so they do have um, the typical university um, complexity um, of having many different missions still, um, you know, superimposed on them. So. What our goal is to, and the reason why I think the institute as an independent institute is is um, an ideal mechanism is that it really uh, allows us to be laser focused on innovation and focus on trying to um, institutionalize it. So in the future, I think that the model that we're kind of building here could actually be uh, replicated at other places with other uh, research institutes. And how are you trying to instigate and make this innovation ecosystem flourish? One of the ways is to not only have scientists, but have scientists that are very entrepreneurial, to have a very clear triage process where we discuss a lot of different ideas. Um, and then we look at the end point and then see what is the actual impact of this idea, if it's actually going to work, um, what is the commercialization path, what is the um, landscape with respect to um, the unmet need, uh, the big problem that we're trying to address, and many different things. And we don't only work with scientists, but we also have a lot of uh, business folks who are um, involved at the Institute. So we have a team that is um, in addition to our scientific team that is focused on innovation. And what they do is that they actually um, do different kinds of analysis. So they look at uh, the different proposed projects. They um, do a deeper dive into the um, intellectual property landscape, the existing companies, the alternative approaches, the market size, the, um, the regulatory pathway, all those other things that are um, very important, but are typically done when a project is already finished. Um, and oftentimes you, after a project is finished, you realize that, yeah, there is a lot of deal breakers that are already there. So that even though a project is finished, it just 
um, it's not going to make a big impact. So we make these kinds of efforts to try to um, hone our research into the few different things that are actually going to be impactful. So by definition, we don't need to be as big as a university because we don't do a lot of other things that a university does, but we're focusing on the specific aspects, which are, um, I think are very impactful, which is kind of what is it that we can do to improve the lives of people um, by um, creating um, new products and new understanding that's um, going to be very um, um, enhancing patients' lives or, or improving people's health. Hey, listeners, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Science Rehashed and maybe even give us suggestions. Ali, I would like to shift gears now and talk more about the focus of your research at the Terazaki Institute. Your work focuses on applying bioengineering techniques and solutions to precision medicine with the ultimate goal of having an impact on patients' lives. I'm very interested to know what is precision medicine and when did you become interested in it? So just to kind of step back a little bit from that and just kind of talk about the motivations of um, working in this area. So um, the Institute is actually uh, uh, based um, on support from uh, Dr. Paul Tarasaki, who passed away um, a few years ago, but his big um, impact was that he uh, developed a process where um, a donor and um, a patient can actually be matched when it comes to transplantation. And um, that happened, um, you know, a long time ago, but what it was is was it was basically showed that you know to be able to do something like transplantation you can't just take an organ from anybody and transplant it to someone else you actually have to um pick the right um and the the right match so this um was is a proof that you know you the therapies even something like transplantation for a long time has been known that you have to um have the right therapy for the right person so Arguably, that was one of the first applications of personalized medicine. Now, uh, fast forward to today, we have a much more appreciation of how differences between different people actually lead to different outcomes in um, how treatments are effective. For example, if you look at the top 10 selling drugs in the U.S., they're only effective on between 5 to 25% of the people that they're administered to. And the other people, unfortunately, don't wind up seeing a um, significant benefit. Worse yet, there are people who have side effects um, of those drugs. So being able to understand these kinds of variabilities and design um, design the right kind of um, intervention for the right um, individual is very important. So, so what we do at the Institute is we have a number of different um, technology platforms that are very synergistic with each other that allows us to kind of um, take the standard approach where people do personalized or precision um, medicine type approaches, 
um, where we can, we, and those standard approaches are based on things like genomics and bioinformatics and proteomics. But what we can do with our um, complementary um, set of technology platforms is that we can add an increasing amount of um, capability to that understanding. So for example, we can um, generate uh, cells and um, that are personalized. So these could be stem cells or immune cells that are tailored for the individual. We can take those cells and start incorporating them into uh, materials that are tailored to individuals, materials that can respond to what um, an individual needs at a particular time, like deliver drugs or deliver cells in a particular way, or be able to take those cells and materials, incorporate them together, and then uh, maybe even 3D print them to generate tissues that have the right architecture and the right function and the right cells for an individual patient, or be able to take those um, tissues that we're making and start uh, mimicking uh, that person's behavior outside of uh, the body. So be able to make little mini tissues that we can even link together so we can have um, the liver and the heart and um, the kidney all interconnected and then be able to create um, physiological models that can predict the kind of problems that I mentioned. For example, which drug is going to work on which person. So this is... Um, all the kind of information and technology platforms that are, I think, very important for future of how we go about um, uh, creating a healthcare system that's going to be more, much more efficient and much more personalized. And, and uh, it's going to lead to much better outcomes as well, um, which is, um, at the end, the ultimate goal. So speaking of generating personalized cells and tissues and the idea of linking organs in one place, I would like to talk a little bit about organ-on-chip systems. So how do these systems play a role in the overall picture of precision medicine? And what do you think are the main challenges and how far are we in actually successfully achieving these goals and projects? I think that we've come a long way, particularly because you know when you think about being able to recreate um, these types of microphysiological models, um, you need to have a few different components. One is you need to have cells and the ability to um, get these cells to become functional. And that's where I think there's been a lot of advances with stem cell science and, um, and uh, directing their differentiation into more functional tissues and integrating that knowledge with tissue engineering principles, which, which have developed bioreactors or other stimulation to um, mature these uh, types of structures outside of um, human body. So that um, process has really helped this um, predictiveness. Um, and also with the advances in engineering, where we're, you know, we can actually monitor these tissues or uh, or miniaturize them. I think there's a lot of um, a lot of advances that have been made. Now, I think there's still some challenges that um, need to be addressed. For example, we need to be able to recreate um, these um, um, these tissues in a way that they're actually going to be useful in the real world, and that requires. Um, not only scientific advances, but also um, better understanding by regulatory and pharma companies to be able to um, ad adopt these um, systems into their uh, um, existing workflows, or be able to uh, create um, you know, tissues that are 
not only have particular cells and tissue types, but also have a much more integrated, for example, tissues that not just have liver cells, but also have liver cells and uh, immune cells and being able to um, recreate more um, kind of advanced behaviors that are not in the current processes. But I think, you know, all of those are the science in this field is moving fairly fast. And I think in the, you know, in, in the next few years, um, there's going to be um, a much more wide um, adoption of these technologies. Already, there's um, there's number of startups and number of partnerships with big pharma that um, they've, um, they've developed that is uh, pushing this uh, field for- forward. So I think um, definitely the, uh, the future is pretty bright for this uh, field as a whole. I am really keen to know what was your biggest scientific contribution to the field? Probably uh, my biggest scientific contribution is actually um, my, my students because they've done a lot of great things. So I'm always, you know, um, pretty um, excited about the things that I see them do. Now, um, with respect to other um, types of uh, lab type things, I would say some of the uh, materials that we built or, or developed have been very widely used um, by the community. So, um, you know, some of the gels that we've been making have become pretty much the standard materials for things like uh, bioprinting um, of cells and tissues, um, and um, and also some of some of the um, work that we've done in tissue engineering and making scaffolds and tissues. I think has been has been uh, very well valued. Now, um, we've also been uh, doing a few things and pushing them towards translation. So we have. Um, some um, work done in um, areas of uh, making materials for surgical applications, um, such as embolic uh, materials that can stop bleeding or fill aneurysms or things like that that are now um, you know, going through the regulatory pathways um, um, through startups. And I think all of those things have... Um, you know, have been pretty nice, but, you know, as, as, um, Tom Brady always likes to say, you know, I'm always more excited about the next one. So, <laughs> and what is the next big challenge? I think definitely, um, the, there's the few big challenges that we're excited about right now. I think, um, some of the work that we're doing, um, in terms of being able to make, um, uh, materials that can be delivered into tumors and be able to combine things like drug delivery and immune therapy and other things are fairly um, exciting for me. Um, you know, and I, I think uh, more big picture, I think this stuff that I'm doing with the Institute as a whole and trying to create the, this whole innovation um, process um, and kind of institutionalize this um, innovation method, I think are very exciting to me. For this episode, we had many questions submitted from our listeners. Amod asks, when do you think the first artificial organ from the same patient will be ready for transplantation? Uh, give for the simpler tissues. Um, I think some things are already out there, like growing like skin cells or, or things like that. For more complex stuff, I think it depends in a gradient of complexity. There could be things that are in three, four years, things that are in five years, um, and, you know, things that maybe take 10 years or more. And we have another question from Richard. Um, if money were no object, what would the focus of your research be? 
I think if money was no object, um, I would probably do like large scale studies of, you know, um, having lots of different um, people's tissues, um, people who are kind of actually undergoing treatments, uh, be able to um, have a very systematic analysis of what their tissue models would um, would predict in um, their actual um, uh, therapeutics. So, so, and then trying to improve that, being able to make better models that can have better predictive um, outputs. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Ali, for answering our listeners' questions. Listeners, if you also want to ask questions during our next episode and next interview, do not forget to post your questions at, on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. Shen, before the episode, you told me you had an announcement to make. Do you want to tell us about it now? Yes. Well, unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. And this episode is actually my last episode on Science Rehashed as the co-host. And Mehdi, it's been a pleasure and honor to host Science Rehashed with you. I absolutely love hosting with you and also the team. And I can't wait to see what the future holds for Science Rehashed. Ali, given your wide mentoring experience, I would like to ask you what important advice would you give to the students and postdocs listening to us? One of the things I would say is that people should be going into science for the right reason, which is their own passion and their own interest um, um, and trying to uh, expand the boundaries of knowledge or try to create um, um, innovations that's going to make a change in people's lives. So that's the right reasons. Um, the wrong reasons is if you just want to have a job um, and you you want to kind of make a living because there's a much easier ways to make a living compared to being a scientist at a very competitive environment like um, Harvard uh, in general. So, so that's one of the first things I would say. Um, so when you work in a laboratory, uh, one has to kind of understand that it's not actually working in a laboratory. First of all, you work for yourself because any any student or postdoc who works in a laboratory, they're building their career. Um, and so then basically they are doing it for their future and not necessarily, um, I, I would argue, not even um, indirectly for the poor professor. They're, they should be doing it for their own passion and for their own um, career progression. Uh, so to do that, I think you have to kind of be able to have uh, specific characteristics. And I always say that to be successful, uh, I like this um, uh, this uh, book by um, that, that talks about grit. Um, and it basically talks about um, people who have grit are are often associated with people who are successful at different careers, and those people have uh, have basically some um, characteristics such as being not only very passionate about what they're doing um, in a in a way that the passion is a long term passion, not a kind of one week being passionate about something, one week being passionate about a different thing but having a sustained long-term passion about a particular endeavor. And then the other thing is uh, ability to persevere and overcome obstacles 
um, as any path will and undoubtedly have many, many obstacles uh, that will come along the way. So, so those are the uh, requirements that I think are needed for um, anyone who wants to go into really any profession, but particularly being a scientist. And I think that postdocs and grad students who want to um, become scientists need to learn that. Now, those are more general advice. I think there's a lot of tactical advice that I can give um, as well. Um, for example, um, being able to work in teams is very important. Um, be being able to um, learn how to be efficient, how to really understand the scientific method, how to uh, be able to ask important questions, how to understand the meaning of words like impact. So these are all kind of very important kind of things that um, requires a lot of experience and to some degree um, learning by trial and error what works and what doesn't work for different individuals and then based on that be able to kind of uh, push things ahead. Speaking of being impactful, you have authored over 500 journal papers with around 70,000 citations, and you're the recipient of more than 60 major national and international awards. Now, this is very impressive. And the question is, you know, how do you do this? What's your secret? And speaking of innovation, one of the missions of the Terasaki Institute, how do you make sure to thrive the innovation in your research group? What is your advice for early career investigators? Yeah, so I think regarding the um, academic kind of um, publications and um, kind of the work that you mentioned on that aspect, I think, you know, there's a very clear way to go about science that um, makes it almost uh, easy to publish. Um, and that clear way is that you have to really understand what, what are the what is a scientific publication? What is it that's trying to address? How do you design a series of experiments that, um, that, that does that? How do you work with other people so that you can actually push um, a scientific project forward in a most efficient uh, manner possible? And how do you actually do this um, all um, in a way that you're protecting your time as much as possible and you're being as efficient as possible? And and also, how do you ask questions that balances, um, you know, the the ability to do them with um, as important question as possible? So there's a few different things about playing the what I call the academic game that you know one can learn, and I think those are all teachable traits. Um, uh, now, I I would uh, as a, as a person who's done all. The things that you mentioned, I would say that uh, that's all can be done by working in teams and ideally big teams, because then you can have a lot of other people who work on different things. And, you know, if you're uh, the head of the lab, you can take credit for all of it, even though you don't really deserve credit for all of it. So so that's the um, you know, that's the good thing about it. Now, um, you know, applying that um, to early careers and applying that to innovation, I think is a totally different thing. Um, you know, the academic um, progression is not designed to really honor or reward innovation. It's designed to reward academic output. So you have to uh, be able to, uh, you know, to basically 
do what they want. So, so which is kind of if you're a, a assistant professor at the university and you have a startup that comes out, but you can't um, fill your CV with publications, then the university is not really going to care um, about the startup. Um, they're just going to care about the publication and why don't you have the publications or the grants or things like that that they care about. So in some ways, um, again, this is another example of how um, the um, innovation mission is not aligned with the academic um, kind of promotions and academic prowess. So, so I think, you know, as a, if someone goes to a university as an assistant professor, then my advice would be um, first try to uh, make sure that your career is secured before you um, go off on um, kind of really um, potentially impactful, um, innovative types of things. So, so that's, you know, that's unfortunate, that's unfortunate, but the reality of the academics is that way. If you're trying to um, really um, focus on something that's risky, but potentially very high impact, then um, sometimes the, those risks don't necessarily um, pan out. So, so it's, it's just a, um, it's, it's just the way things are set up right now, which is, you know, all the more reason why I think we need a whole shift in in the way that we measure um, impact and measure um, you know academic promotions and things like that and related to publication we have another question from one of our listeners Mercedes asked how can I publish and be systematic about publishing multiple first author papers during my graduate education I think the the best way to publish a lot of papers is to really not care about um, where one is on the authorship, um, to begin with, you know, you just kind of work hard on, um, on projects and you finish them because I think finishing projects is much more important than, uh, starting them. So, so, so just kind of just working with other people and, um, being good at finishing publications. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing your secrets with us. Another Ali just joined us. Ali Danish, our Science Rehash ambassador from Iran, and would like to ask you a question. You know the situation of the uh, like chemistry students here in Iran. Uh, what your advice for them to stay motivated at this journey, and how they can choose the fields to go into? I mean, how did you choose uh, your field when you decide to go into biotechnology and? when you were studying chemistry engineering? So I think you know, if you're, you should only focus on what you can control. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, you can control your own uh, education, your own um, um, behavior. So you can uh, basically become as good as possible within a particular ecosystem. And that typically allows one to, um, to continue improving and getting into um, better situations. So that could be, you know, going from a you know good university to a better university, or from a, a good lab to a better lab. So, so that's kind of my general advice: that try to focus on things that you can control, work hard, um, you know, have passion um, and perseverance. This quality of grit, and um, I think things wind up um, becoming better. 
This advice is really helpful for me because I'm actually a PhD student right now. And so you talked about your previous research labs in Toronto and how they really sparked your interest in science and allowed it to grow and allowed you to develop as a scientist. And so I'm wondering how all of that and your previous experience has impacted your mentorship style and how have you been able to continue being a mentor throughout your career? Good question. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, one of the things that all mentors um, understand is that they they want the best for their people, right? So, and um, as you kind of get a very established um, career, then you need less and less for yourself. And, you know, then you, you really don't have much to gain with respect to being a author on another paper or things like that. So like my um, PhD advisor, he's got like, I don't know, 1500 papers, but he still spends a lot of time, um, you know, with papers because he knows that's important for his uh, students. So, so I think, you know, that's part of um, being a, being a mentor that you try to kind of push um, the success of your people. Now, you know, there's uh, there's uh, layers of complexity on top of that because we all have our own personalities and our own ways of doing things. So I would, um, and I've had different types of mentors, um, the ones that are kind of um, more of a, you know, kind of hard love kind of um, process where you kind of are, you know, more strict. And through that, you kind of create people who are more disciplined and you, you uh, also have people who are more inspirational and kind of more hands off. So I, I feel like, you know, my style is somewhere in between. Um, I try to um, kind of um, try to push people beyond their boundaries, because I think that that's the only way to pe to get people who are um, who are kind of um, realize what they can actually accomplish. Um, and if you don't, um, if you don't really get um, an understanding of what is possible, then you're never going to uh, achieve it. So, so to me, that's um, that's important. If you have people like you know, you have to really realize what different people get, um, you know, what works for them. Um, some people um, respond good with one approach, and um, some people don't. If you have you know, people who are self-driven, then you basically need to stay out of their way and see how you can help them. But you know, but if you have people who are, um, you know, let's say not self-driven, then the first thing I do is that I basically go back to the roots of why they're doing science. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, you do science for yourself, not as a job. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's when I start talking a lot of philosophy with people. Um, and um, since I've always run really big labs, I've always had all kinds of people that I've um, interacted with. So, uh, you know, I spend probably more time on uh, philosophy than I do on science. I feel I can speak for all the students and junior faculty listening. And thank you, Dr. Kanamoseni, for your precious advice. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Ali, for joining us today. It was a wonderful discussion. And it was a pleasure and honor to have you in our show. I'm looking forward to all the future exciting research coming out of your lab, as well as the Terazaki Institute under your leadership. Thank you very much, Matthew. Great to catch up. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. 
This episode was written by Kira Maffei, edited by Tavian Pollard, and mixed by Jared Warsaw. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. 